and uh, it's been a minute. Uh, Sunday school was canceled last two weeks with the weather, so it's, I'm glad that we could resume our, our class on biblical sexuality. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we consider this um, important yet oftentimes challenging topic. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much for your grace and your kindness and your presence among us this morning, and uh, we thank you so much for Redeemer and what you, are, what you have done and what you are continuing to do at our church, and I pray that you would use <clears throat> this, this class, this time to equip us, encourage us, um, just help us become more like your son and help us uh, be more faithful um, and fruitful ambassadors for Christ in our families, at our work, uh, wherever we live, work, and play. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're continuing uh, our class, Biblical Sexuality. I gave a quote last time. I I honestly don't know who said this. There's no view of sex in all other religions or worldview that is as robust as that of the biblical view of sex. Um, You know, just a one of many ways to just encourage us as we come to the Bible to learn about this, that there's a lot it says and a lot of ways it helps us. I mentioned last time we're going to be kind of Song of Songs. The book is going to be our home base, but it's going to take us on some very good rabbit trails each time um, on different topics. So today we'll cover body image after we look at chapter one. Um, but we'll, we'll talk a lot about just our, our culture and how our culture um, talks about sex. I, I mentioned the three lies last time. Uh, in a couple weeks, I'll kind of counter that with the three main truths the Bible teaches about sexuality. We'll go through a position paper from our denomination that talks about sexuality, especially hits on kind of a biblical approach to same-sex attraction and to the transgender issues. We'll talk about singleness uh, in a couple weeks. <clears throat> um, there's, like a, there's a conflict in Song of Songs between the, the bride and groom, and uh, that'll help us discuss from 1 Corinthians 7 how um, sex can be a point of conflict in marriages, and we'll, we'll talk about that some. And then the last chapter of Song of Songs talks about the importance of discipling the next generation in sexuality, so we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Uh, I mentioned last time that there are two common approaches to the book of Song of Songs. There's the spiritual approach where they just kind of spiritualize and allegorize every part of it. Um, They don't take any of it to apply to human marriages. It's all about the marriage between Christ and the church. And uh, I I gave some some examples of just some, you know, what we would all probably say like are some stretches of ways they take this, this image of like golden or these black wavy hair of the man and that's the, the divine counsel of God. And, um, but then there's the opposite, where it's the natural approach, where it's just purely about um, the human marriage. And uh, so we said we're going to be taking a blended approach to Song of Songs, that we're going to start and really take it literal as, you know, lessons for um, humanity on love and on sexuality, but there's also a, definitely a sense because uh, our relationship with God is oftentimes called a marriage, uh, Ephesians 5, Isaiah 54. And so there are definitely ways that you can then um, talk about the human marriage as a picture of our relationship with Christ. 
Um, my last lesson was called Divine Romance, and we talked a lot about um, just the importance of really experiencing our relationship with God and with Christ um, in a very intimate way. I heard someone say um, at a conference I was at this week, why don't we in our relationship with God, a lot of times we say, I love you, God, and we need to say that, but what if we incorporated the language of, of I love you too to God more, like in our prayers? And I thought that was really helpful. It gets at that idea. Uh, we talked about the three lies about sex last time. Um, these were from another pastor. Uh, but um, the first one was that sex is everything. That's, that's one of the lies in our culture, that it's kind of salvation. Uh, but then the opposite is that sex is nothing. It's just kind of like a handshake. It's just, it doesn't mean anything. Um, and then sex is the way to freedom. It's a place where people really express their um, views of the world. And, and um, so, yeah, that, that's, we, we took some time on that. And we'll, we'll come back to some of those things as we go throughout the, the, the class. Uh, a couple other introductory things about Song of Songs. Um, there's a little bit of debate over when the, there's, uh, there's a marriage eventually between the two. So the passage we discussed today, they're still engaged. The first couple chapters of Song of Songs, the, the, the man and the woman are engaged to be married. And then there's debate over when the marriage actually happens. It's basically, is the marriage in chapters um, three and four, or is the marriage this, this culmination at the very end of the book? And good... Scholars that we trust disagree on that. Um, whether you take which one approach you take doesn't, you know, deeply affect the interpretation of it. You know, all the same principles apply no matter what. We are going to be taking the view that the marriage happens in chapters three and four. So we'll uh, we'll discuss that more when we get there. Also, um, Phil Riken, I mentioned his book last time. Uh, he had he wrote a book on Song of Songs a couple years ago. And he, he starts off his book on the chapter one of Song of Songs in a helpful way. He tries to take us into the, the setting that would, would be the most like, likely setting that this, this book came out of, and that would be a wedding feast. Um, today, in our day, weddings are you know, generally one day. It's, it's the ceremony and then the reception. Um, in, that, in that culture, when this book was first written, marriage celebrations lasted days. Uh, I, I think even if you study the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns the water into wine, that was a multiple-day celebration. And so just try and picture this multiple-day just celebration of a couple. But then even more specifically, um, you know, today we often have music at weddings. Um, hence uh, a movie that came out, The Wedding Singer. Um, but honestly... Uh, Phil Riken, he says, I think a very likely setting for this is think about um, kind of the, the, the top songs for weddings. You know, there are, there are some songs in our day even that are often used at wedding receptions for different reasons. They talk about love. And so he's like, think about these as the most popular songs in Israel in that day for weddings. And these would have been sung at weddings um, to really celebrate what was going on. Between them, they could have even been sung at the wedding of Cana, where Jesus uh, turned the water into wine. Um, also, just a note: you, it's probably pretty obvious, but Song of Songs is poetry. Um, it's not a story. 
Uh, you, one person said, think about, you know, when, when we had, when CDs were more popular, you'd have that little booklet on the, in, the, in the CD, and the booklet would have all the lyrics to all the songs. Like, think of Song of Songs like that booklet. It's the lyrics to this love album. Um, and so if you read it like a story, you'll be frustrated because there's a lack of clarity at times. But if you read it like a love poem uh, to this really rich relationship, um, very romantic relationship between these two, it's a lot more helpful. Um, and you, you can understand some of the metaphors and, and, uh, and the ways that it's working better. <clears throat> so, first, the, the book starts out, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. <clears throat> so what do, we, what do we even title this book? It's sometimes called Song of Solomon, sometimes called, called Song of Songs. It doesn't necessarily matter, because obviously both are true. According to that, um, the phrase Song of Songs, it's a superlative. It means the best of songs, the finest of songs. That's where I mentioned earlier, like this would have been the best songs that would have been on like the top of the list for to have at something like a wedding. I uh, think of the phrase Holy of Holies. It's like the most holy place. So this is like the best songs is what that means. And I think it's the greatest song we can kind of say because it's because of the subject it's about. It's about love, which is one of the most important subjects um, for humanity and in the Bible. And that, even that word uh, song, the song um, of songs, it's, it's in the singular. Uh, so the song, singular, it's a uni- that helps us see it's a unified message in this. Some people often think these are just a collection of random thoughts. Uh, but this is actually still a unified message throughout. Um, it's not just a collection. So like Proverbs is Proverbs in the plural. Uh, but this is the song of songs, so it's one song. Um, and then, of course, the, the idea of it being a song reminds us that it's poetry. Um, it's not didactic, it's not uh, narrative, but it's poetry. And then it says, which is Solomon's? And so the question is, what is the relationship of Song of Songs to King Solomon? Uh, so the authorship of Song of Songs is complicated. Uh, the word translated for, you know, which is Solomon's is uh, kind of ambiguous. It has a wide variety of uses. It doesn't necessarily have to mean uh, that it was authored by him. Um, so there's actually some good arguments against this being authored by Solomon. Just a few are, um, it doesn't follow the typical grammar um, so like even that, that, that is not the normal way, which is Solomon's, that if, if it was written by him, it would have been different words in the Hebrew to describe it was actually written by him. So it could have a different meaning. Um, the biggest you know, challenge to Solomon being the author is how many wives did he have? He had a, a thousand. Um, and so how can you harmonize the faithful lover in Song of Songs with Solomon who... <laughs> was not a faithful lover uh, who had all these wives. But one argument could be maybe this was written by Solomon later in his life when he realized the futility of you know, how many women he would go after. And so he gained some wisdom from his mistakes. That's, that's possible. Another reason against Solomon authorship is that it's written in common dialect. Um, Solomon would have been highly educated and would have written this in a much uh, more sophisticated dialect. Um, And then even just a specific example that we'll get into today, in verse 7 of chapter 1, it talks about the man being with his sheep. 
And it's written, that verse is written in a very literal way as if the man would have been with his sheep tending his flock and, and Solomon would have never been a shepherd. He was born into a royal family. He would have been in royalty his whole life. And so that's just another example that makes it hard to believe this was written by Solomon. So one possibility is that was written in Solomon's honor. So this, this, these songs would have been written in the day of Solomon when he was king and written in his honor during his reign. There's also the possibility that some of the mentions of Solomon in this book are a prophetic indictment on him. Um, oftentimes when Solomon comes up in the different parts of this book, there's, it's, it's pretty clear that there's some indictment going on on, on you know, some of the flaws of Solomon. And then the groom and the bride, the, the man and the woman, who are they? They're probably not specific historical figures, but they're idealized figures showing what love can look like in its most beautiful form. So, just a little bit more of intro on that. So then it gets going. Um, it first starts off with the woman. And, you know, there's no introduction in the book of the characters. It doesn't really set the stage for us. It just jumps right into this passionate love between this man and woman. But there's a sense in which you could see, that not that often true of love? It, it can often um, overcome us suddenly. Um, and that's what happens, that's kind of the, the, the mood of, of Song of Songs. It just kind of jumps right into their passionate love. So it says, let him kiss me with the kisses, plural, of his mouth. And so it's obvious here that she wants something more than just a formal kiss on the forehead or, or a kiss on the lips. It's kisses, plural. Um, and so it's, it's a more intimate thing that she's longing for. And then it says, for your love is better than wine. And that is um, really sugarcoating the Hebrew there. That word there used for love um, is more, the, the sense is more caress. Like literally think of, it's, it's a sexual word of wanting to be physically intimate. Um, your, your love is better than wine. So needless to say, she is looking forward to her wedding night. As I mentioned, they are engaged at this point. So she is, she's wanting a particular kind of intimacy, a, typical, a particular kind of sexual relationship. Um, she doesn't want it to just be about procreation. She doesn't want it to just, you know, be this, you know, one-night stand. She wants it to be this passionate, emotional, um, rich experience between them. Some rabbis, they said, would counsel the young men in the synagogues to not read Song of Songs until they were 30. Uh, because of how graphic it can get. So then she continues, Your anointing oils are fragrant. fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. So that phrase, your name is oil poured out, is talking about his character. And so it's not just physical attraction that she has to him. She's attracted to his character. Um, and it's a, it's, a more, it's a more holistic love. And it says, therefore, virgins love you. Uh, that's actually not the specific word for virgins. That's just their best guess at what is being meant there. It's probably her bridesmaids. Um, it's just this idea that they, they also approve, uh, that, that this man is well-respected in the community. Verse 4, draw me after you. So she's wanting to be swept off her feet. Um, you know, and let's also understand here that she's wanting the man to take the lead here. She's very assertive herself, as we'll see throughout the book, but she's also wanting him to take the lead, and that's, of course, a very biblical model for marriage. Um, let us run, it says. So she's wanting to be swept off her feet quickly. 
And it says, the king has brought me into his chambers. And king there is, is metaphorical, um, just kind of speaking very highly of him. Like she's his, she's, uh, uh, he's her king. Um, and this is her desire to you know, finally be married and be able to go into his room and, and make love with each other. And then uh, verse 4 continues, it switches to the others, they call it, because it becomes plural. And it says, we will exalt and rejoice in you. That's an exuberant rejoicing. There's, there's just excitement about this marriage. We'll extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Um, so the community is celebrating this, this union that's about to happen. Um, and they're affirming in a, in, in a very righteous way that this is happening. Um, it shows that marriage is not a private thing. Uh, but it's a community thing. Of course, their sexual relationship is private, but their marriage is a very much a communal thing, um, not in isolation. But then there's a tension introduced uh, as we continue. There's a tension. She says, I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Keter, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. So what is going on there? What is... What is she getting at? Um, she is worried that she's not attractive to her fiancé. But yet, notice, she's still defiant in the midst of that. But I am lovely. And so it's, it's a tension inside of her. She, she recognizes that there's a sense in which she doesn't look the way she wished she did. And of course, dark there is not about uh, you know, race. It's about uh, her being out in the sun and... and um, being too tan, if you will, which used to be the, the more attractive you know, standard in that day. And why is that? It's because they think, um, you know, and when, when society was more agrarian, the, the poor people would be outside. They would get colored from the sun. The, the wealthy would stay inside. And so it was almost this picture of wealth if you were not tan. Um, but uh, after the Industrial Revolution, if you remember, more of the... the you know, poor in the society worked inside in the factories. And so the wealthy, you know, and pools started developing more, and the wealthy were able to be at the pool, and, and it became more attractive to have darker skin. Um, so rather than thanking God that she's a country girl, she laments her rustic upbringing. She says, My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Um, that's the, kind of her looks. So that's kind of the context of why she had to work in the vineyard. Um, was because she was made to, do, to work out there. Um, verse 7, Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. What this is, is she's wanting to have lunch with him. He's out shepherding his flocks during the day, and she's wanting to meet him for lunch. And... Um, but you don't always know where shepherds would be at any given time. Shepherds didn't, you know, always follow a specific path. And so it's her trying to figure out where he is. Um, and then also just that phrase, whom my soul loves. It shows this is much more than a physical relationship. This is a holistic, rich relationship, whom my soul loves. Um, and one person said, don't miss that the deepest longing in Song of Songs between them is not a sexual partner, but a soulmate. And then it says, why, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? 
Um, and that day, often the woman, is, if they're out in public, would, would veil themselves. And she doesn't want to have to wear her veil. She wants to just be able to be with him alone, out with his flock, so she doesn't have to wear her veil when she's around him, is what she's saying there. Um, all right, so she said all that, and then the man responds. If you do not know, that notice that's actually kind of a teasing tone. It's kind of, he's kind of being playful with her. You know, hey, you should know this. What should she know? Oh, most beautiful among women. So notice, he immediately addresses her insecurity. And that word beautiful there, it definitely includes physical beauty. He is physically attracted to her, but it's much more than that. Um, He's attracted to her in much more ways. Follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. It's just a simple reference to that she's also a shepherdess. She tends flocks as well. Then he says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. So a man should always be careful about comparing his woman to a horse. Uh, but this is, uh, this is something a little bit different going on than maybe what we would think. Um, this, there, there were in, in Pharaoh's you know, armies especially, there were light chariots that a mare, a female horse, might pull. For example, like through a parade. Uh, a mare, and so these mares in, in Pharaoh's parades would have decorative bridles, um, and so notice he immediately goes into um, talking about her cheeks are lovely with ornaments, so that's, that's kind of the reference there, is just like Pharaoh's chariots would have these beautiful adornments on their face, he's just praising how her cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. So it's significant that he's staying above the neckline still at this point, because you know the marriage happens later. They're still engaged. And he's also just kind of affirming her beauty and in, 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 in her physical beauty in different ways. Um, and also remember, he calls her most beautiful among women before she has all these adornments that he's talking about. Um, it reminds me of so many country songs today where, you know, the guy is just like, you're so beautiful even when you don't have makeup on. You, you, you're always worried about makeup, but you're so beautiful without it. And, and it's, it's in some ways... That order that he goes in follows that some. But I'm going to switch it now to, to think about reading um, Song of Songs in a, in the, from the spiritual standpoint. You know, often people only read this where it's just between Christ and the church. But there's a censure here where we could stop and pause and think about, okay, this, this attraction between them, but also this affirmation between them um, reminds us of another... Um, deeper relationship and it points us to to this god does the same thing with us um, by the god's grace we discover that his name is oil poured out his character is beautiful like this man's was and the the fragrance of his sacrificial work on the cross it's it's even called the fragrance of god in the, in the cross ephesians 5 2 is is beautiful so we were made to be beautiful yet um, we hesitate in our relationship with God because we know our lives are darkened by sin, just like this woman is insecure about the way she looks. Um, you know, and, and part of the darkness of our sin is our disordered sexual desires, amongst many other things. But God, just as this man affirms this woman's beauty despite some of her insecurities, God affirms our beauty despite some of our brokenness. Um, and so there's, there's, there's a little bit of a, 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 a deeper... Um, a dynamic going on there that we can acknowledge. So, um, as he 
going back now to kind of the literal discussion between the man and the woman. So he praises the way she looks in her makeup. Her status as a bride is now being more implied, that she's getting ready for the wedding day um, also. And then the others jump back in. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. So as the, er, the woman earlier had invited others to join her in praising her man, so now the man invites others to join him in adorning her with earrings of gold. Then the woman, she comes back and says, while the king was on his couch, my nard, which was a super, super precious perfume in that day, gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. So they're not married yet, so they can't you know, lay with each other in a very intimate way. Um, but she's saying that the myrrh on her chest is standing in for him in the meantime, is, is what most believe is going on there. Uh, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Engedi, if you remember, was an oasis near the Dead Sea. And henna was a very fragrant blossom. So it's just a very endearing metaphor, Engedi and henna blossom, to describe her love and her warmth. Um, and the Engedi reference also, I think, can point us to and remind us about how a, a, a good and quality, flourishing marriage between a man and a woman can be, in some ways, like an oasis, like an Engedi, um, in our broken and, and difficult world. And it's almost a call for those who are married to cultivate the kind of marriage that would, you know, be experienced like an oasis amidst the struggles of life. So that's kind of a quick breeze through of, of verses 1 through 14. I wanted to um, now transition to kind of really double-clicking on that idea of body image, that the woman expresses some of her negative body image. And that's very much something that, um, you know, in, in the humanity, but all, even in Christianity, um, is, is a very relevant topic. So um, it's still January. And so body image has been very, is always pretty popular around January as people are kind of thinking about their New Year's resolutions and wanting to get back in shape. Um, but there's, you know, there's struggles that we have when it comes to body image. The, the, the Bible here in, in Song of Songs chapter 1 is very realistic about our struggle with our embodiment. Um, the burdens that many women and even men face over body image are immense. Um, and I think in adolescence, you know, middle school, high school, and college are probably where it's felt the most in people's lives. Um, but it, it, it can still be very much a struggle throughout someone's whole life in different ways. The standards, they vary by culture. Um, different things, you know, are more beautiful in different cultures. But there always seems to be something for a woman or a man to try to improve their skin tone, their hairstyle either a flatter body or a more curvier body. There's always a feature that should be bigger, smaller, or downright more beautiful than it is. And again, this is men or women. All experience some sort of dissatisfaction with their bodies. Um, all have some sense of not measuring up, and we're all kind of followers in this. There's always some sort of standard out there that you know, people are not measuring up to. And one of the influencers, of course, of this is the media. Um, young men see more images of beautiful women in a single day than the average man might have seen in a lifetime 200 years ago. Um, this, was, this seemed a little 
far-fetched for me, but in the 70s, the, the average human would encounter 500 ads a day. They say now um, the average human encounters, at least in America, 5,000 ads in a day. That seems like a stretch, but that could be possible. Um, and of course, these, so that's, that's just to say that we're, we're very much exposed to our media and to the ways that it's trying to shape us. Ours is also a pornified culture, some have called it. Uh, the standards have shifted from being beautiful to being sexy, to showing skin and is, to show skin is an, an, is an inevitable, inevitable part of being a female star these days. Um, and of course, people in some of these roles, it's their full-time job to look a certain way. So they have, they have you know, nutritionists and full-time cooks making them eat the right things. They have the time to give, to, to work out, to, to get this. And then we'll also, I'll say now, Photoshop also helps. Um, and so there's Photoshop. I mean, here's just one of many examples. Um, the woman on the left, you know, beautiful woman, but then she's made to look like uh, she is on the right for the advertisement. Uh, Cindy Crawford was once quoted to say, I wish I looked like Cindy Crawford. Um, just you know, just seeing how they make her look in the media. Um, of course, there's the objectification of women, especially. It's become normalized. One person said 96% of sexually objectified images in the media are of women. According to the CDC, for women ages 20 years old and older, the average height for women in America is 5'3", and the weight is 166. But for fashion models, the average height is 5'10 and 120 pounds, so taller and yet even lighter. By age 6, girls start to express concerns about their own weight or shape. 40 to 60% of elementary school girls ages 6 to 12 are concerned about their weight or about becoming too fat. Um, and this concern can uh, endure throughout life. Uh, my wife, Sarah, she did her senior paper in college on the over-sexualization of young girls. Um, and she has some, you know, interesting findings that she found in that, if you ever want to talk more about that. Uh, so, of course, the media. But also, we have to realize that our stories can also impact our own sense of our body image. Maybe you had a parent in your life who uh, said something to you that was very negative about the way you looked and had a certain standard even um, that needed to be followed. Um, or maybe of someone at school. Things like that can definitely leave imprints in our minds and, and be challenging to work through um, as we think about ways we've been impacted in our stories. And so, okay, what is a biblical response? Um, I wanted to start by talking about, some, there's, there's some un unhelpful ways we as the church have responded to body image issues. The, the, the main way to describe it is just this approach to rise above it. Um, one person I was listening to this week, she talked about how when she was at camp, one morning the, the counselors um, in her girl cabin covered all the mirrors uh, you know, early in the morning before the girls got up. And so that when they went to the bathroom, there was just this black tarp over the mirrors. This idea, don't, you know, I don't want you to look at yourself in the mirror today. And of course, there is, there is value to that, but, but she went on to describe that there's actually uh, some unhelpful things about that approach of just kind of rising above it and just not thinking about our physical, um, uh, 
our physical bodies. And I'll talk about how 1 Peter 3, Peter talks to the wives and says, don't be concerned about outward beauty, you can be concerned about inner beauty. So I still affirm the emphasizing inner beauty over outer, but um, someone I was listening to talked about how that approach is actually impacted by what is called platonic dualism, which is a very fancy way of just saying um, kind of this distinguishment between the physical and the, the immaterial. And so there's this hierarchy where the soul is more important than the body. The inner part of you is more valuable. Um, our souls are more valuable. We are trapped in our bodies. It prioritizes the spiritual at the expense of God's creation. You know, leave the inside stuff to God and the outside stuff is just up to us. You know, and that can lead to pursuing physical beauty for vain reasons, but, but all is Christ's. God is not dualistic. Uh, the spiritual and the physical are equally important to him. He didn't create junk, and he doesn't junk what he's created. Uh, he became human himself, which is the ultimate validation of, of our bodies and of creation. The new heavens and new earth are going to be physical. Um, it's not just disembodied souls. Uh, Paul, he talks about the spirit versus the flesh. And you can kind of think, oh, Paul's emphasizing you know, the immaterial of the material. But what he means by flesh there is the old self. He's not talking about you know, that the physical flesh is bad. Um, and so this kind of still accepts a, you know, a selfish approach to beauty, this, this sort of dualistic way of thinking about it, uh, which is not a kingdom approach. It, it also um, fails to deal with the heart issues beneath body image problems. Um, it also fails to, you know, this approach of just rise above it fails to account for how God actually does want us to care for our bodies. We should care about our bodies to a, to a certain extent. You know, Christ is Lord of all, including our bodies. 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And so he doesn't deny the importance of bodily training. But then Ephesians 5 is even more clear. When Paul is talking to husbands and wives, he says in verse 28 of Ephesians 5, In the same way husbands should love their wives as as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, And then verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but what? But nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So Paul assumes there that we should be nourishing and cherishing our bodies. Okay, so that's kind of against this idea of rising above it, and hopefully I'll explain more of of what a more healthy approach is. Um, What difference does Jesus make in our struggles with body image. I think a helpful place to start is 1 Corinthians 6. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. This was a saying in Corinth in that day. Um, and I mentioned it last time, how the, the idea was kind of, I should be able, just like I, when I'm hungry, I eat. Eventually, the, the logic was, when I have sexual desire, I should be able to fulfill it, no matter what, what it takes. So just the food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. And here's the important phrases. But the body is meant for the Lord. But then he also says, and the Lord is for the body. So I want to kind of try and summarize the biblical approach to the body in those two ways, that the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. So first of all, the body is for the Lord. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that your body is a temple 
the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our bodies are bought. In any other context, that is horrific news. I mean, think about all the damage throughout the ages of people being bought by other people. But here, it's amazing news. Um, I heard someone give the, uh, the example of a, a woman who had been trafficked as a child and then was, was freed and has a flourishing life now. She loves this verse. She loves this idea of her body being bought by Christ because of what Christ's, what that means of this one who gave up himself for her. And so it's talking about in that verse that our bodies are holy ground. Our bodies should primarily be used to please Jesus. And different passages affirm this. Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Romans 6.13, do not present your members at your body, your hands, your feet, your ears, your eyes, to sin as instruments, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God, your body to God as instruments for righteousness. So we offer our feet to God and go where he would have us go, our hands and our eyes, our ears, our tongues, and even our thumbs. You think about how we engage with our phones and technology, but also our sexuality, our sexual parts of our body. Friends, we did not discover sex behind God's back. God meant for us to have sexual energy, but how can we use it? The question in in these verses is how can we use it for his glory? And of course, if we are married, 1 Corinthians 7 and Ephesians 5 does have this sense that our bodies don't just belong to God, but they also, in a sense, belong to our spouse. We'll talk more about that when we get into 1 Corinthians 7. Um, So the body is for the Lord. Um, Our bodies are not primarily for the standard of beauty in this world, Uh, and we have idolatry of that. The pursuit of beauty becomes an idol. Uh, It tells us that God is not enough if if, if he doesn't give me all the things I need to be happy and feed the idol of my glorious image. We've been taught to limit beauty only to meaning something if it serves a particular end, and that's my end. It can serve the end of the different types of idols, the idol of control, where some can experience control if they, if they look a certain way. It can influence people. Um, it can serve the idol of comfort, where you can get kind of what you want, or of, of the idol of acceptance. We want the admiration and attention of others. We want the power and security of being pretty so that talking to new people is less intimidating. It doesn't feel good enough to be made by God or even have him care about our physicality. We want to be beautiful in a way that changes our day-to-day. And that's a struggle that that often people can face. Uh, But living for this idol never satisfies. We we work ruthlessly to keep up our appearances, um, but we we forget that God loves us in the way that the groom loves the bride in in Song of Songs chapter 1. And we don't let that um, minister to our hearts more. And so we need to adopt a better framework for beauty. One person I read talks, kind of uses this phrase, the prettiness framework. That's not to say you can't use the word pretty. That's, that's, it's okay to use that wor- word. But she's trying to just kind of use the word pretty to distinguish between beauty. Um, and, and what she means by pretty there is this sense of measured through comparison or in comparison to a standard. Defined by our culture, and, the f- and few people ever feel like it applies to them. Uh, this, this sense of you know, the prettiness framework, it is merited and it is marked by striving. But beauty, um, biblical beauty, is measured by its nature and by its creator. It's a manifestation of God's triumphant purpose. Beauty is cultivated 
because it's something that's already true of us. So prettiness is merited, beauty is cultivated. So to adopt that prettiness framework, it's actually unloving to do it because it's based on what? It's based on comparison. It doesn't treat people like image bearers. Um, So God has created his people with intentional diversity. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Um, His game is kind of a a kaleidoscope of, of beauty through diversity. And so we still, though, need a nuanced approach to physical prettiness, if you will. Um, First of all, it's subjective. Every culture has different standards. But also remember um, what the Bible says. Okay, 1 Peter 3 says we need to focus more on inner beauty. But we also can't forget that um, Ruth, for example, she makes herself look good uh, uh, to Boaz when she's finally going to basically ask him for his hand in marriage. Song of Solomon, there is, there is an affirmation of, you know, caring for your body and trying to make yourself look good for your spouse. Um, you know, there are examples in the Bible of, of seeking to look physically beautiful if it's for the right purposes. Uh, but of course, it can easily, like anything, easily become an idol. Um, you know, we also, it, it's a, we have to work on kind of guarding against unhealthy standards of beauty based on kind of how the media Um, teaches us. But we also must care for our bodies. So it's not just, you know, neglecting any sense of how our bodies are, but but care for them. But but do it for the Lord and not for men. All right? And then, uh, so the body is for the Lord, but the Lord is also for the body. Why is the Lord for the body? He has made billions and billions of people. Apparently, he loves doing this. Uh, Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, O Lord. So bodies in God's economy are not mass produced. No person is an accident. We are all fallen, but we are all beautiful. We are knit together. Um, And so some of the application of this is gratitude. Gratitude for the bodies we've been given. Notice, sometimes I think we forget the phrase in verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, That shows this sense of of him being grateful for the way he is made. You know, God's plan is for us to live in a particular place and time was very specific for him to carry out redemptive history. Some of us can believe that when it comes to you know, some of us can believe that idea when it comes to our spiritual gifts or, or ways, you know, where God has placed us, you know, geographically. But can we trust that God made us look the way that we look for his own redemptive pur- purposes? I mean, look at Psalm 139. That is, that is the approach that the psalmist is taking. God designed the way we look, <clears throat> and however much it does or doesn't conform to the worldly standard of prettiness, All of that is for his kingdom. I have to look a certain way for a specific part of the mission to let the world know about Jesus and his gospel. I'm I'm quoting now someone who I I listen to on this. Whoever is attracted to you or not is all accomplishing a purpose, and it's bringing glory to God. Uh, That's a very true thing. It, It still doesn't mean it's easy to accept at all times for some. And that's that's kind of the, one of the main 
differences to that approach of just rising above it, of just covering the mirror and not worrying about our physical appearances. That's actually not following Psalm 139 when it says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, Our bodies are beautiful because they were designed purposefully. Think about King David. I'm almost done here. King David, it is said that he um, was not very physically attractive, yet look how God used him. Obviously, there's the story of Rachel and Leah. Um, There's so much more we could get into there, but Leah was less attractive than Rachel, and yet she was used mightily. Jesus came from her line. Jesus, even in Isaiah 53, there was nothing physically about him that would attract us to him is is somewhat how you could render Isaiah 53. Um, But all of those serve God's purposes. Yet on the other hand, Esther was beautiful, the most beautiful amongst women. And God used that to, to save his people in the midst of their exile in Persia. It's, it's a good reminder that, you know, when Romans 6 talks about us giving our bodies for the glory of God, it doesn't give any qualifications. It's not just us who maybe have, you know, beautiful bodies according to worldly standards. But it's, there's no qualifications. We all, with our bodies, have the ability to give much glory to God. Um, he's given us everything we need physically to fulfill his purpose in our life. So that's, that's what I have this week. Um, we'll continue next week. And... reminder, with the new building opening, Sunday school is at a different time next week. It'll be at 9 a.m. in here still, Um, but then we'll go from here to the new sanctuary for worship next time. So 9 a.m. next week. Uh, I look forward to being with you all again then. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for just all the different parts of our lives that your, your word speaks to. Um, And I pray as we even just reflected on this reality of body image that I know people in this room right now have different um, experiences with that issue, some heavier, some not as much. Um, But I pray whether it's been our experience or not that you would equip us on how to love on those maybe struggling with this more and those who may be struggling with this more, would you continue to um, develop our our approach and our mindset um, to, to um, kind of adopt this idea from Psalm 139 of being fearfully and wonderfully made and all that that means for us in our lives. Uh, we thank you for giving us physical bodies, Lord, and all the, the enjoyment <clears throat> um, and, and wonder that we get to experience in life because we are an embodied people. And um, we just pray that you would help us to continue presenting our members to you as instruments for righteousness in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.